Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode of the Bear Sock Underground is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Tons of people take a multivitamin, and it's important to choose one that is top quality. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adoptogens to help start your day right. This special blend of ingredients helps to support gut health, the nervous system, immune system, energy recovery, focus, and aging. It's lifestyle-friendly, adapting to a wide range of diets, and it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no chemicals, or artificial anything. Plus, it costs less than $3 a day. It's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially during cold and flu season. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash sports drink. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash sports drink to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. <laughs> this episode of the Bear Stock Underground is also brought to you by ColorCast. Guys, ColorCast is a live audio-only sports talk platform free to download and to use. Talk to me, other fans, athletes, and insiders in real time, and it's perfect for watch parties, debates, post-game breakdowns, and reacting to breaking news. All you need to do is download the ColorCast app free in the iOS uh, app store, create a profile, and link your Twitter and join a group. Follow me at BTU Larry to be be notified when my room goes live, and we'll be going live on ColorCast every Friday night, 7 p.m. Central, 8 o'clock Eastern. Come and join the spiciest takes. Come find the new home for Club (laughs) 34-7. What's up, guys? Long time, no talk. Back for another Retro Rewind episode, this time going from 86 to 85 uh, when the Bears against the San Francisco 49ers, a revenge game for the Bears, uh, having lost to the 49ers in the 84 NFC Championship game. The 49ers went on to win the Super Bowl. There was also the uh, refrigerator moment uh, as well. My guest for this episode uh, Lauren Cox, and the reason that I chose Lauren uh, for this is because Lauren wasn't born until 96, so he did not uh, experience this era like many of us did, or you know, more specifically like I did. 85 was my first year following uh, a team from start to finish, and the Bears went 15-1 and one and won a Super Bowl. Talk about uh, ruining it for me going forward, but... Um, you know, I wanted to get the perspective of someone who did not live through this era and have them go back and experience what this team was like, not in like the highlight reel or anything like, but watch them play a game from start to finish, play by play, and, you know, also watch them do it on the road at the defending world champions, you know, home home stadium, 
and everything. Watch them dismantle the former world champions, uh, one of the all-time greats in Montana, uh, Roger Craig. Jerry Rice was a rookie in this game and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Very interesting era uh, of football for the Bears. And watch this 85 team, this team with so much mystique. They're almost mythical at this point. Watch them on a play-by-play basis. Watch the offensive line, you know, be aggressive and open up holes for sweetness. Hell, watch Walter Payton. Watch him catch the ball. Watch him run the ball. Watch him block uh, and things like that. You know, McMahon being healthy and playing in a game, The you know, all that kind of stuff. Ditka on the sidelines screaming at everyone. And, and more importantly, watching Buddy Ryan's 46 defense dismantle Montana and that West Coast offense where Bill Walsh had no answers for what, uh, what uh, you know, Buddy was throwing at him uh, that day. Final score was 26 to 10, and the 49ers only scored three of it on offense. The other was a pick six uh, as well. So, I mean, they held the world champions to three points uh, on offense and, uh, you know, made a statement that day for sure that uh, the, 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 the crown was theirs for the taking by destroying the 49ers and leaving no doubt as to who the better team was at least in 1985. So um, brought Lauren in, uh, watch the game. You can find it on YouTube. Just search Bears Niners uh, 1985. It'll come right up. It's about a, it's a two-hour video. It's the, it's the full game with the commercials and everything cut out. I appreciate the editor and the guy who posted that for doing that because I've seen a few of the Bears games on YouTube where I'm watching commercials from 1989. Like, okay, I don't need this. So can we just watch the game, please? But um you know, it's about two hours, 12 minutes, something like that. It's the full game, uh, no commercials or anything. And, um, you know, you can watch the, the game as well. It's not a watch along where, you know, it's kind of like what, what, what I did with Emory Moorhead a few weeks ago where, you know, we've both watched the game to refresh our memories and, uh, you know, basically kind of talk about what we observed, what we saw, the notes we took, uh, and so on. So had a lot of fun with it. I had a great time with Lauren. Uh, looking forward to having him back later on in the off season. The, the, the next time I know for sure we're going to have Lauren on is when we do our opponent previews, and the Bears are always the main event uh, of that one. The last show before training camp starts to preview the 2022 Bears. Uh, you know, By then, we'll have had our draft. We'll have uh, made our final moves in free agency and added to this roster to see what uh, Ryan Poles and Matt Eberflus uh, are molding for us Bear fans to follow in 2022. So. Uh, enjoy the show, guys. Had a lot of fun talking, as we always do, when Lauren comes to visit. Uh, be sure to follow him at Cox Sports One on Twitter and to uh, you know listen to the Locked On Bears podcast five days a week from the Locked On uh, Network. So uh, let's go ahead and, and dive right in. This is the Retro Rewind episode of the Bears Talk Underground. Bears 49ers, week 6, 85. So let's get to it. Hang up and tell it. So here we are back for a, another episode of the Retro Rewind, and our good friend Lauren Cox from Locked On Bears is here to join us. Lauren, how are we doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty well, and um, learning a lot through this process, and excited to learn a little bit more today. Yeah, because we've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other as far as the, the guests that I'm having on the show. Uh, we're still doing an 80, uh, 80s Bears game. This time we went with the 85 Bears. Um, and, you know, the last time we did one of these, we had Emery Moorhead, uh, who was not only 
around at the time. He was on the field playing in the game that we were talking about, Week 12, 1986, Bears-Packers, where Charles Martin slams Jim McMahon to the ground, uh, you know, basically the parking lot painted green that was Soldier Field uh, back in the mid-'80s that re-aggravated the shoulder injury that basically cost the Bears their chance to go back to the Super Bowl in 86 and repeat as world champions. Uh, All the way to Lauren joining us, who was not only not at the game in 1985, he wasn't alive uh, in 1985. So uh, Lauren's going to be doing some learning this time as opposed to Emery Moorhead regurgitating what he could remember about that game 36 years ago. So here we go. It's uh, let's let's set the let's set the set the stage right now. All right. It is week number six, 1985. The Bears are five and oh. Uh, so far in this young 1985 season, the 49ers, who are the defending Super Bowl champions, are 3-2, and two, which is odd for this early in the season because the year before, the 49ers lost one game all season on their way to beating the Dolphins in Super Bowl 19. So, uh, you know, the fact that they've doubled their loss total inside the first quarter of the season is quite troubling for the fans and Bill Walsh and Montana and uh, company. Uh, This is a revenge game for the Bears. They've returned to the scene of the crime where nine months prior, in January of 85, the Bears lost 23 to nothing to the 49ers in the NFC Championship game. The Bears with an upset over the Redskins in the divisional round to earn a berth in the NFC Championship game were sent home scoreless, 23 to nothing in the NFC title game. And just to give some context as to how long ago this was, uh, Jerry Rice, who played for 60 years in the NFL, this was his rookie year and his first professional start in the NFL. So there we have it. Your thoughts so far, Lauren? Yeah, that was actually one of the first things that stood up to me when they're like, and the rookie, Jerry Rice, takes the field. I was like, whoa, this is this is his first season. Okay. This is <laughs> very first one. And and they're, s- like, they're yeah. not sure who this guy is good. I mean, they knew he's good, right? I mean, he's not coming out of nowhere specifically, but like – Little did they know what kind of career he was going to have from there. But th- those timelines didn't quite in, in my head hadn't quite synced up for me because like I I know very little about football before like the year two thousand and five or six right around there. It's really, I really started getting into it a little bit more when I was you know nine and ten years old. So it's, I, I like to think it's it's understandable for me. But yeah, a lot of those things of this era, I'm like okay, so this was like real late Walter Payton career, which I I knew that. I mean, I know enough Walter Payton, but like. Sure. Rookie year, rookie year, Jerry Rice was was like, okay, I'd like looking like, how early were we in, in Joe Montana's career? Like, how far were we from Steve Young? And I had to kind of dig into this a little bit. Yeah, we're, I think, six or seven years into Montana's career. I believe he was drafted in 79. Uh, Steve Young was still, I think, a year or two away. Because I think they traded for him in 86 because he was, he went from the USFL to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, sadly. And then they traded for him where he played back up to Montana for like five years before he finally got a shot to start in like 91 or 92. So something that would not happen in today's NFL where you would have a Hall of Famer on the bench for six years before he became your starter. I mean, Aaron Rodgers came pretty close there, but but I was also I was also in love with, and I knew the old 49ers would do this, but it's just really funny seeing Jerry Rice line up at wide receiver in a three-point stance. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that was part of the uh, the old school differences of the of what we see today versus what we had then. It was a very old school offense, very run heavy, 
uh, for the Bears. Lots of fullback usage, you know, play action, seeing a lot of, um, you know, pitch sweeps uh, to the outside, multiple linemen pulling and, and things like that. So uh, the other thing that we had or didn't have, no score graphics, no no time on the clock, um, no uh, first down line or anything like that. It was very bare bones. And if you weren't paying attention for the three seconds from the break of the huddle to the line of scrimmage, you didn't know what down the distance was it either. So, you know, they didn't really uh, do it up with the graphics like they do today. Yeah, it made the broadcasters a little bit more important, which yes. which was for me too because like it was it was funny hearing it be Dick Stockton and then realizing that he still does games for CBS. Yes, 36. but now it's the uh, the living corpse of Dick Stockton that's that's doing the games. Fair, yeah. but it, it is the same voice. Like you can recognize the way of like holy crap. I still hear that guy. Yeah, he's un, unmistakable. Unmistakable. My life. And well, and you mentioned there too that you know a very run heavy and and in this game in particular, that's not what the Bears did for a while. I, I, at one point they flashed a graphic, and of course I don't remember exactly what time of the game it was because they don't show us because they don't use other graphics. But they had a twenty to nine pass to run ratio. I, I want to say it was like. Third, like late third quarter, early fourth quarter, right, right around there. The Bears. I mean, it was a pass-heavy attack, and they were even like starting out of the game, it was like three straight passing plays, and I was yeah. that that jumped out of me right away. I was like, well, I I was expecting give the ball to Walter Payton thirty times and just plow them over. Yeah, we got there eventually because he had something yeah. like twenty-four carries for a buck thirty-two uh, in the game, but I, I think most of that came in the fourth quarter when. Ditka was trying to slow the game down and uh, get out of town with the uh, with the win. So, so we start out. The Bears have the football, and the first thing that kind of jumps out at you is the infield of the baseball diamond in Candlestick is still out there uh, on the field. So you've got this patch of uh, dirt in between the patches of. Uh, grass on the field something you don't see anymore now that the Raiders have their own stadium uh, in Las Vegas nobody shares a stadium uh, in professional sports uh, anymore unless we're talking like basketball and hockey otherwise baseball and football don't share stadiums anymore yeah and and of course you know like they're, as they're previewing this game you know they're, as they're getting into the game they go and, and in out comes the top rated passer in the NFC yes man and I was like Jim McMahon really? Was the top-rated passer in the NFC coming into this game? Yeah, and I, I was looking. He, he finished that season with a passer rating of eighty-two point six, which which finished seventh, which is still higher than I would have probably guessed if you had asked me. But but if you had to guess where that passer rating would rank in twenty twenty-one, where would you put that in the top? You know, thirty-two quarterbacks. Um, I would say if we broke it up into quarters i would put him at uh second from like third quarter from the not top tier not second tier but third out of four so like in the, in the eight area. points passer rating like in the in the middle like the yeah. you know so currently it would rank 28th he, oh, wow. he, his okay. pass rate that season is worse than Baker Mayfield this year, Daniel <laughs> Jones, Taylor Heineke, Ben Roethlisberger, Jalen Hurts, Davis Mills, Tua Tungavailoa, et cetera. That, it's just it's hilarious how like that was top billing back then, or you know, among yeah. the quarterbacks. And, and the he went to a Pro Bowl back. and won a Super Bowl that year. Yeah. So yeah, but, hey, the, Andy Dalton was just a couple spots below him. If if that's a good comparison for you. <laughs> Oh boy. So 
But the, uh, you know, the Bears come out right away. Six plays, like 73 yards, something like that. Big play early. McMahon finding Willie Galt down the field. And, and as many times they show that replay, I don't see both feet in, but they gave it to him anyway. <laughs> uh, he's inside the five-yard line. And then like one or two plays later, after a failed tackle eligible uh, that almost got picked off in the end zone, uh, Sweetness runs it in from three yards out. And six plays and two and a half minutes into the game, the Bears have already increased their the scoring total that they had nine months before in the same building in the NFC title game. They got shut out 23 to nothing, and here they are up 7 nothing, a lead that they would not give up for the entire game. And they said Willie Galt led the NFL in yards per reception up to that point. It was over like 23 per catch at that yeah. point. And I was, again, like surprised like the way he was able to win downfield. And I know like Jim McMahon was chucking them at, sort of throughout the game there, but when when Galt's not even your leading receiver up to that point, but still making making the big plays downfield, I was also surprised by the the tackle eligible throw there and and a lot more like pre snap motion than I was expecting to. Yes. I mean, I've not watched a lot of those games like they'd come out in one formation, shift to another, and then most of the time it was just like Shuey or, or, or Suey or the fullbacks or whoever like or tight end just kind of going across the formation. But still, like I, I think of pre snap motion as not being a brand new thing to the modern NFL, but more so being used more frequently in the modern NFL compared to previous eras. But I'm guessing maybe that's just been more cyclical than not like something they've never have done before. Yeah. You kind of get the feeling that it wasn't used so much the way it's used in today's NFL. They use it today in the NFL to try to see if the defense will show their hand as to what kind of coverage they're playing against you. Whereas, um, you know, I, I think it was, it was kind of used more as a, as a confusion tactic because how many times did you see Willie Galt motion out of the backfield into like the slot or to the far end of the field before the the ball was now I mean hell Willie Galt even ran the ball out of the backfield at one point uh during the game uh as well but it's like you're right there was a lot of mixing to do and then something else that I noticed watching the game was there was a lot of misdirection in the running game where you would have like the running backs and the offensive linemen that were pulling crisscrossing with each other like the fullback would go in and fill up the spot that the guard just left open so the guard could pull around the corner uh to block for sweetness on the sweep or whoever was running the ball in that particular play yeah even the galt thing was in in the backfield was surprising to me too like i didn't like that's like you know not to make the debo samuel comparison in terms of like skill set exactly but like that's like a thing we do nowadays. Like they put a wide receiver in the backfield and hand it off to him or make defenses account for him in different ways. And I was really surprised to see like how much they kept doing that over and over. Like even when like it was still really rare for them to ever go into shotgun. It took like uh, three drives before they went to shotgun at, at that point, but then brought extra wide receivers on the field. But even when they did bring extra wide receivers, one of them was still golf in the backfield. So it was still like three out wide. And then Galt was sort of the fourth one with Peyton back there next to, next to Jim McMahon. But yeah, all those things I think it's not that I didn't think they ever did them ever in the past. It was just like more like the frequency compared to now was it jumped out of me right away. Yeah. Yeah. So the bears were up seven, nothing. Uh, in the game, the 49ers get the ball and do nothing with it, end up kicking the ball right back uh, to the Bears, who go on a decent drive. You got some runs from Sweetness in there, and uh, stalls out, and rookie Kevin Butler kicks a 34-yard field goal to put the Bears up 10 nothing, And that's just where the trouble is beginning for the 49ers because on the very first play of the next drive, Russ Francis, their tight end, who was a pro bowler, 
by the way, gets the ball peanut punched out of his hands by Wilbur Marshall, and there the balls ha- the Bears have the ball inside 49er territory right there again with a 10-0 lead. Yeah, I had that in my notes too. Wilbert Marshall, peanut punch of sorts to force tight end fumble was exactly the words I had written down because he's like getting spun around. You see Marshall come in and it's, it was hard to tell like – I mean he did punch it. It wasn't quite – I mean like it, it happened so it was kind of a bang-bang thing. It was hard mm-hmm. to tell exactly how you know much of a punch was just kind of like his fist ran into where the ball was but it but it popped out right away. And, and, and let's not skip over uh, – I think – Right before then, or was it right after then? Tim Reitman, the backup tight end in for Emory Moorhead, had a really nice play downfield. And he, to me, had the biggest, longest shoulder pads of anybody. On the- <laughs> looked like, like I noticed like everybody's shoulder pads are big, right? But, yes. but for some reason on him, it looked like he had like a full-size dinner plate sitting on the front of both of his shoulders underneath his jerseys. And it looked ridiculous. Like, they all look a ridiculous <laughs> compared to now, but his were just humongous. And it, yeah. it just... But he was making. He made a couple of nice catches in that game. You know, you know who also uh, whose whose shoulder pad stood out for me was uh, Frederick, number seventy one, the guy that was running the tackle eligibles. Oh yeah, I mean that guy is like already like six eight at least, and he's got these gigantic Godzilla type shoulder pads uh, on his shoulders. The guy stuck out like a sore thumb every time he ran out onto the field. So. Uh, I, I guess they only give 71 to guys who are towering over the rest of the team, like Big Cat Williams and uh, Izzy Adonage, because that guy was definitely fulfilling the or starting the tradition of like six, seven and higher wearing number 71 for the Bears. It's, it's funny when you talk about like the big guys on the team, because at one point they're like, you know, the the big, strong Jimbo covert. And I forgot what his height was, but the weight is, is the punchline is like at six, four. 275 pounds he's yeah. a mauler you know for them and i'm just thinking wow okay like well this was a time when yeah. our, our first round pick william perry was an anomaly in the nfl being over 300 pounds and nowadays you don't even look at i mean how many guys are going to be drafted in the first round of this nfl draft that will weigh over 300 pounds the over under's got to be about seven or eight with offensive tackles and defensive linemen being drafted uh in this upcoming draft you'll see it more times in the first round than you saw it in probably the entire 1985 draft that's one of the things that stood out to me more generally was like when we talk about the the way the running game had success for 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 both of these teams really i mean they both ran the ball particularly in this game I, i my theory is and i'm curious in your thoughts on this is that the offensive linemen then compared to now like we're closer in speed to the defensive linemen and linebacker. Like like nowadays, linebackers and defensive linemen are so fast. And it doesn't feel like offensive linemen nowadays are all that much faster than they used to be. And it feels like the gap between their speeds seem lesser. So like when, when the Bears and the 49ers would all try and get to the edge and pull a couple of linemen out in front, like the linemen were actually able to get out in front yeah. instead of the modern NFL now where it feels like Every linebacker and at least you know the edge rushers are all just freak athletes that can always get out there first and create much more of that contain that havoc where it's like it seemed like back then because the offensive linemen were lighter and the defensive players just weren't as fast, the offensive linemen had a better shot to get out there in space and be more successful out in space compared to how they are now. For sure. I mean, that's definitely something that you see in today's NFL. I mean, I think that's where the zone read running game comes from is that because of the speed of the linemen and the defensive ends, outside linebackers uh, and such uh, on the defensive side, you want to get these guys running out wide 
and then open up lanes for your running back to cut back because he's not going to be able to outrun these guys around the edge more times than not in the NFL. You just don't see it too much in today's NFL to try to get to the outside. I mean, how many times does Sweetness do that in this game where he made it around the edge and then got upfield? Um, you don't see that too much in today's NFL where the running back is going to get it get around his offensive linemen who have beaten the linebackers and such to the punch and get that get that running back up the field. They they very much do it more so spreading out the offensive line and keeping it between the tackles than trying to beat those those speedsters to the edge. And I think part of it too is just the presence of the fullback. You know, when you yes. add extra gap where the first blocker's through the hole and like he can be that last one, like whenever that guy's going to come to contain on the outside, the fullback is there to give Walter Payton like that one more block to give him that freedom to get to the outside. And and same thing for the 49ers too. I just I just don't know their their fullback name. I mean, I know Roger Craig, but that's that's about it for their running game. But they had some of the same success. Like against that 46 front, they were like screw running up the middle against those guys. Yeah. We're just going to get it to the edge and get a fullback on their linebacker. And he kept breaking free for those 10 plus yard runs over and over. Yeah, because if you got between, because the way the 46 was set up, we had three linemen head up on, on both guards and the center. So the A-gaps were gone. You're not running it up the middle uh, on those guys. But if you got between, if you got through the guard and the center, or if you got outside the tackle, excuse me, the guard and the, and the tackle, or if you got outside the tackle, you had a good chance that if you got through there clean, you're going to have a decent run uh, on your hands. It was like the weakness in the running game for that uh, offense, but it was a very gap-heavy uh, offense where, you know, the linebackers are filling in where the defensive linemen aren't, and, you know, the Bears did have the number one rush defense in the NFL, A, in this game, and B, in 85. So, I mean, it was a very uh, successful run defense, but it had its vulnerabilities. If you got through the line of scrimmage, you had a decent shot of getting some yardage before the third-level guys got to you. Yeah, and I was surprised looking at the box score that Roger Craig only finished with with 42 yards because it felt like he had like a handful of those really long runs. And I, I too also like I knew Roger Craig was good. Like I recognized his name from that era, but mm-hmm. I like I was surprised like how fast he was and how impressive he was. And I didn't realize like he had a thousand yards rushing and a thousand yards receiving that season as well. I mean, he was just he was so good. But the 49ers had. A dozen penalties in the game that called back at least. Like oh yeah, they, that was practice. that was what was really killing the 49ers because there was one drive in particular where it seemed like they were deep in Bears territory. They had the ball for like five minutes, and yet because of all the penalties, they ended up punting to the Bears from like midfield, and you know pin the Bears back deep. But it's like weren't they just at the 30 yard? Oh no, that one got called back. There was like an 18 yard run from Craig that got called back for a holding penalty and an illegal motion here or there and, and whatnot. The 49ers had 13, 14 penalties for over a hundred yards in this game. And I think the bears got to like their fifth penalty in the second quarter and really didn't have one for like the rest of the game. They were pretty mistake free in this one. Yeah. And it wasn't like it was a lot of these like, either like ticky tacky things or like referee opinion things like it was they had like four or five false starts where it's just like it's clearly obvious right it's not just like the refs yeah. deciding to call holding over and over again on the 49ers because they got the bears on a few of those too or it wasn't pass interference but it was like things that were very obviously visible or disruptive to the play and, and i associate like a bill walsh coached team 
as not being that type of sloppy with the penalties or the fumbles. I think they had two that actually stood, and there was one early on where Jerry Rice like was down but had fumbled. Mm-hmm. And I for a second I thought the ball was you know you think the ball is loose there, but the turnovers and the penalties was not something I was gonna I was <laughs> anticipating from the the defending champion Bill Walsh Forty ers Right. I mean, and that's kind of where we are in this point in the game because the Bears they scored on the first drive, they forced a punt on the. First 49er drive, drove that one in for a field goal. And then, like I said a moment ago, first play of that second drive, Russ Francis fumbles the football. The Bears um, kind of stall out on the draft, or the drive, excuse me, and hit another field goal, this one, from 34 yards out for Butler. Now they're up 13 to nothing. And then a few plays into the next drive where the 49ers are actually moving the ball pretty decently. Um, their running back whose name is eluding me right now, not Roger Craig, because the funny thing was on the opening graphic, Roger Craig was listed as the fullback in the offense, and number 26 was the running back, who apparently made the Pro Bowl the year before. What was that? Uh, Wendell Tyler. There you go. Yeah. I just have it up on the internet in front of me. That's yeah, right. he, uh, he fumbled the ball right back to the Bears, and it's still in 49er territory. So the Bears had four drives and scored the ball f- and scored four times, but only had 16 points to show for it because those last three drives all stalled out and Butler had to kick uh, field goals, something that would eerily seem to come and kind of get in their way, you know, or to threaten this game from, like, the point. Like, because we're still, like, 10 minutes to go in the second quarter. We're up 16 to nothing. And it wasn't until, like, early fourth quarter that the Bears finally scored again. Uh, this matches something I'd, I'd written down to the words. Something eerily familiar about a Bears team with a great defense settling for three field goals in the first half after having great <laughs> field position. Like, yes, it was the 85 Bears. They won the Super Bowl. But, like, yeah. some things never change, right? Right. I mean, and, you know, the funny thing is it's, um, you're, you know, watching this game through 2022 eyes and watching the Bears do what they were doing in that game. Getting the turnovers, but only getting three points. And, Starting the drive inside 49er territory and, you know, three and out, kick a field goal kind of thing. I mean, hell, it was reminiscent of the Bears 49ers from this past fall, you know, where, where the Bears are, are playing well, they're dominating the game, but they keep settling for field goals, and it took one big play from the 49ers, that Debo Samuel thing, to get the 49ers back in this thing, and before you knew it, the game was over and we lost kind of thing. And we're doing this against the defending world champions in their own house, so you just... Looking at it through 2022 eyes, it like you said, eerily similar, and this could go wrong so many ways so fast because we're not out far ahead as much as we should be at this point. I have to say, I would have never in a million years believed you if you had told me that, much like the 2020 and 21 Bears, much like the Matt Nagy Bears, that Jim McMahon and Mike Ditka and Walter Payton would run like a rollout shovel pass to Walter Payton the same way that Matt Nagy did with his running backs, quarterbacks. I was like, I was floored when I saw them run that and, and have it work. And I was like, wait, they, they did that then too? Like, it was a big play too. It yeah. was, worked really well. No wonder yeah. Matt Nagy ran it. Yeah, I mean, the Bears blocked it though. That was the difference. Well, so, yeah. you and, know. and speaking of blocking, I was I I think I had heard this before, but like Walter Payton as a lead blocker, savage, or even just as a, a receiver for yeah. Jim McMahon on a scramble. Holy man, holy moly! Like that guy. <laughs> for like they talked in this game, like how you know, like Walter Payton at this stage of his career has kind of said like. 
ideally they like to be winning and not make him the workhorse so he doesn't have to carry it 30 times. Right. But I feel like it's just as hard on his body when he's throwing his entire self into a linebacker or a cornerback to free up space. Like he's still putting in the physical work because that's just the kind of guy he was. But wow, pass protection and run blocking. The dude could hit. Yeah. Peyton put his whole self into into playing football, man. I mean, he, he reveled in his ability to block um, earlier in that season, their week three matchup against the Vikings. We're losing the game. It's, it's actually like a Thursday night game. And what was hilarious about this game is that you're a broadcast booth for this special once in the whole season Thursday night game, which was on ABC, you know, like a special edition of Monday Night Football is what they called it. That's also a game you can watch on YouTube if you're interested. The broadcast booth was Frank Gifford as play-by-play, accompanied by Joe Namath and O.J. Simpson. <laughs> okay, the unintentional comedy in that booth was off the charts, just watching that game. But in the third quarter, the Bears are losing 17-9. to This thing is slipping away. Steve Fuller was the starting uh, quarterback because McMahon had um, some kind of issue. He was in the hospital like three days of the week. He didn't practice. So McMahon, Dickett wasn't going to let him play. But we're losing 17-9. to he puts McMahon in on the very first play. You can you can hear the story on uh, like America's Game, uh, when the, when they did one for Super Bowl twenty, uh, they called a screenplay, and the inside linebacker for the Vikings blitzes, shoots the gap, gets right through, and obviously now it's now it's schoolyard football. But Sweetness comes in and damn near crushes the guy's pelvis to to stop him from hitting McMahon. And McMahon, in turn, finds Willie Galt down the field on the very first play for a 70-yard touchdown. So just like that, the Bears have scored nine points in two and a half quarters. McMahon's in for one play. We're on the board. It's a touchdown. Now it's 17-9. Now it's 17-16. And what's even greater is that the very first play on the next drive, McMahon throws another touchdown pass. And on the second play of the third drive, he threw another one. He was on the field for four plays through three touchdown passes. We were down 17-9. Now we're up 30-17. to Bang, bang, bang. Just like that. That's why he was the number one rated passer in the NFL going into this game. He did that a couple of weeks earlier against the Vikings. Yes, yeah, and I had never, like, I had always associated Jim McMahon as, like, you know, really pretty darn good Bears quarterback, mm-hmm. but not, like, relative to many other teams' best quarterbacks in their history, not really on the same. I mean, certainly no one's saying he's on the same level as all these Hall of Famers or whatever, but I was surprised that. And then we get to, was it the third quarter of this game when he's dropping back under pressure on his back foot, just throws a pass for some reason, 20 yards to the middle of the field to nobody. It was in the second quarter, actually. Picked off. Yeah. Brought back. Was it Was it Ronnie Lott? Brought back untouched for a touchdown. No, it wasn't Ronnie Lott. Um I forget who it was. It was one of their cornerbacks, a guy that doesn't really have much of a legacy, I guess, because yeah. his name didn't stick in my head. But, yeah, he's off his back. Like, he's literally off his feet when he throws the ball down the middle. And this was after we were up 16 to nothing. We get the ball back, and a couple of plays into that drive, McMahon's driving backwards on his back foot, is literally in midair. His entire body is in midair as he throws the ball down the middle of the field to no one in particular and hits a wide-open 49er safety who runs it back for a touchdown. And just like that, it's 16-7, to like we were talking about before. You're noticing this is eerily, eerily, eerily familiar, and you don't like where this is headed, all these field goals instead of uh, getting touchdowns. And bang, just like that, we scored four times on our first four drives, and here we are. Now we're only up you know, nine points, which in 
1985 was a two-score game. I mean, it is in today's NFL as well, but, you know, it's just like that. It's 16-7. to seven. It's like, okay, well, all right, well, don't like that, but all right, we're still up nine points. And it's like you're terrified of giving free touchdown and free points to Joe Montana and Bill Walsh, the defending Super Bowl champions, right? Like up up to that point, I guess still to that point, they had shut out that offense. I mean, it's still even when the score is 16 to seven, like they have still it it, mean it took was it almost a second quarter before they even crossed midfield. Like the game just kept being played in 49ers territory over and over again. And even then. The points only come because shout out to Carlton Williamson was the cornerback who picked that off. Okay, he made the Pro Bowl that year. I think in some part due to that pick six. <laughs> like I mean, good for him. But yeah, I mean that's it, it. It shows like a like how dominant the defense was in terms of like shutting out Montana and Rice and and Craig and Walsh up to that point. But then also the way you know McMahon giveth and and at times McMahon taketh away. Yeah, I mean, I mean. Going into the into that game against the 49ers, they had already played against a team that had recently won. In, in their first six games, they played the last two Super Bowl champions. They played the Redskins week number four. They won the Super Bowl in 83, and then the 49ers won it in 84. The combined score of those two games was 71 to 20. The Bears beat the, the Redskins 45 to 10, and they beat the, the 49ers 26 to 10. And in 83... The Redskins literally set the record for points scored in a season to, you know, on on route to the Super Bowl. Actually, I'm wrong. The Redskins didn't win the 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 Redskins lost in the Super Bowl. My mistake. They lost to the Raiders in '83. My mistake. So, but yeah, they had the number one offense, the highest scoring points, and and everything, and they got crushed 45 to 10 in Soldier Field. Bears spotted them a 10 point lead, then ran off 45 straight to finish the game. In large part due to just massive numbers of turnovers they would seem yeah. to be generating every week. I mean, look, looking down that they looking down that season, they only had one game without a turnover and one game with one turnover, and, and the other, you know, f- fourteen games or whatever it was, they had at least two turnovers generated by that defense. Some as many as they did seven against the Lions in Week sixteen. Like that's that's hard, like almost hard for me to believe. But like, you know, I've been meaning to watch that game. I ke- it keeps coming up in my YouTube feed. I'm mean, like, ah, Week sixteen, they murdered the Lions. But if you really want to see something to show you the difference between today's NFL and in 1985, watch that Lions game because Wilbur Marshall literally paralyzes two quarterbacks in that game. He destroys this one. I mean, sure, I'm sure you're, you've seen the hit online many, many times. The running back, is, or excuse me, the quarterback is rolling to his left. He throws the football and is immediately drilled with by Wilbur Marshall, who's got his whole head right into the guy's ch- uh, chest and launches him, literally launches him about five yards from where he hit him, knocked him out cold on the field. That is a penalty today where they, they would just bury him under the stadium. That's how much of a, uh, you know, how much of a fine or a penalty he would, he would suffer in today's NFL. They didn't even flag him for that in that game. I noticed that throughout this game where like there would be plays where like after the whistle guys are shoving a little bit or there was one I don't remember somebody slapped the other one in the face mask like yeah. just yeah. and and no flags back then or like after Ronnie a, Lott slapped Willie Galt in the face I yeah. remember that one yeah they were, like each other it was like 
that just blow the whistle, rush stands between. All right, well, go and, back. and they also showed us at one point in the game, Wilbur Marshall grabbed a lineman by the throat or something like that, or <laughs> grabbed him by the face or something underneath his face mask. It's like the referees are like, okay, guys, break it up. Let's you know play football here. It's like okay, he just assaulted this guy. But no flags, no nothing, no warnings to the sideline or anything like that. Let's just go back to the huddles and play ball. But then there was like one play, I want to say it was in the fourth quarter. It was a run. I don't remember if it was to Suey or, or Peyton where someone was flagged for piling, jumping on the pile late. And it was kind of, I mean, it was probably, it was definitely was a flag in 2022. Um, I, yeah. It, Probably pretty ticky tacky for back then. I was like, oh, so 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 now they're going to call it when a player is sort of falling down after the player's clearly already down. He wasn't like he didn't aggressively. It like, was hit. McMahon actually. Was it McMahon? That it makes was sense. because it actually extended the drive in the fourth quarter. Because the third quarter, we we you know the 49ers, they kicked a field goal before halftime, so it's sixteen to ten. Now it is a one score game going into the half. Third quarter, basically nothing happened in the third quarter. No no points scored. The only note that I have was I had two notes for the entire quarter. Bears running game was solid and so well executed. You just, you know, the the linemen were hitting their spots. Sweetness was what man, he was the most patient runner as he was trying to work his way. He was looking for his lane and waiting for his lineman to set up the block so he could uh bounce off of him or or run through him or or what have you. He did it so many times in that game and it was such a a well-oiled machine that they had when they were running uh, the game, the offensive line, number one, those guys won the battle at the line of scrimmage basically on every play. And they were playing on the other side of the line of scrimmage as opposed to what we saw a lot in 2021, which was the defense playing on our side of the line of scrimmage, screwing up the lanes for Herbert and Montgomery and, and Williams when they're trying to run the football. And the other note that I had was a uh, big pass play to Matt Sui negated by penalty would have had the Bears at the 10-yard line, but instead they had to punt. So that's why we came away with no points in the third quarter. But in the fourth quarter, uh, we had a drive extended by that penalty because it was third down. McMahon did not get the first down, but he he slides. Ronnie Lott brings him down, and then the other safety comes basically jumping on top of him. And what really did it was that McMahon did a little bit of acting and like rolled over on top of his own head. Mm-hmm. like he, It was like almost like doing a, a back roll. Uh, on the field, he was literally asked up to the sky. Is is how he ended up after that guy landed on top of him. It was it was good acting, and, and you could you could hear the 49ers fans like getting upset more and more as all these penalties kept coming down on their team at home at Candlestick. Like yeah. it was just it, it was so it was so weird to watch, but it, it was fun to watch Walter Payton the, the way he ran. I mean, just not that any of this was a surprise, but just tough physical and like never going down in the first hit and always yeah. falling forward. Like no matter where the contact started, he was always going to get at least two more yards, if not four or five, especially like uh, on that second touchdown that he had where like he, like he lowered his shoulder at about the four yard line and then carried Ronnie Lott the last four yards it's into the end zone across the pylon. Yeah. Just it was unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> this episode of the bear stock underground is brought to you by athletic greens. Tons of people take a multivitamin, and it's important to choose one that is top quality. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adoptogens to help start your day right. This special blend of ingredients helps to support gut health, the nervous system, immune system, energy recovery, focus, and aging. 
It's lifestyle-friendly, adapting to a wide range of diets, and it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no chemicals, or artificial anything. Plus, it costs less than $3 a day. It's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially during cold and flu season. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash sports drink. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash sports drink to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. <laughs> this episode of the Bear Stock Underground is also brought to you by ColorCast. Guys, ColorCast is a live audio-only sports talk platform free to download and to use. Talk to me, other fans, athletes, and insiders in real time, and it's perfect for watch parties, debates, post-game breakdowns, and reacting to breaking news. All you need to do is download the ColorCast app free in the iOS uh, app store, create a profile, and link your Twitter and join a group. Follow me at BTU Larry to be I, to be notified when my room goes live, and we'll be going live on ColorCast every Friday night, 7 p.m. Central, 8 o'clock Eastern. Come and join the spiciest takes. Come find the new home for Club 34-7. <laughs> I mean, because it's one thing to watch Sweetness's highlights, because you're going to see the best of the best there. And, you know, my favorite Sweetness highlight is a run where he got caught from behind that Kansas City Chiefs run where he runs to the side spins back in you know <laughs> legs chopping bangs into the first guy running here he comes boom you know lowers the shoulder into the second guy gets caught from behind while he's still going uh and everything like that it, but it, you know it's one thing to watch the highlights it's something else entirely to watch it play by play in a game to see how he was like that on virtually every single play and the thing about this offense that the bears are running that that you know that Ditka uh, you know, had installed there was that when Matt Sui was the runner, you know, which happened quite a bit, even as a fullback, Peyton was his lead blocker. You know, Peyton was out there in front. And like you said, you were impressed by his, his blocking. It's what the, it's what the offense called for. Cause when, when, when Sui was out there, it wasn't like they were, you know, lined up in the eye formation. Therefore Sui was in front of him. No, they were lined up side by side, you know, in the split backfield, and he would hand the ball off to Suey, and he's running behind Walter Payton. And I was surprised just how often – I mean, I shouldn't have been surprised, but it struck me how often Suey was getting the ball. Mm-hmm. Like, I know it ended up being only six carries, but with a couple of those negated by penalties, and one of them went for, like, 17 yards or something, and, yeah. like, how effective that was in, in some part because of Payton's blocking, but also Suey being pretty darn fast for a fullback, yeah. too, I guess, for what we think of as a modern fullback. Yeah, not a very big guy either which is something else that you would expect especially in today's NFL there's a fullback for the Ravens who weighs 300 pounds so you know converted nose tackle exactly yeah Yeah. and Matsui is not that guy so I think he was even smaller than sweetness and he's his lead blocker uh for him so you know it was uh yeah definitely a different era uh, of the game uh for sure so but you know the 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 scramble leads to a field goal so now the Bears are back up two scores 19 to 10 and um the next drive for the 49ers is I think that drive that I was talking about where uh Roger Craig had at least two or three 10 plus yard runs 
on the on the drive, but had almost nothing to show for it because every other play was a holding penalty uh, for the 49ers, which I think speaks well to how how well our defensive line was doing at penetrating and getting to the backfield that the, the you know the offensive linemen which had a couple of Hall of Famers and stuff on it were had the need to hold in order to be able to for their guy to get through. Yeah, it, it was it was unreal just like the the consistency and the size and the strength of just like every single time it, it seemed like they were able to win. I mean that and, and really you know, like, like you kind of mentioned earlier, like move the line of scrimmage and control where the line of scrimmage was almost every single time they were on the field. Like at least, at least there was always going to be some kind of space that that they created and they were in charge of where the play was going to go. Yeah, I mean, and I remember one of the uh, announcers uh, remarking that um, you know McMichael, Stephen Michael, um, and uh, you know prayers up to Steve McMichael. Man, he's in bad shape right now. It's um, sad. It was, I mean, it was kind of depressing to see, you know, the animal that he was to know the condition that he is now. I mean, the poor guy's essentially just waiting to die at this point. And um, it, it is, it is sad to, to see, you know, the animal that he was back in 85 to what he's been reduced to, thanks to mother nature's evil plan uh, at this point. But um, when they were talking about McMichael, they remarked that in 84, he had 10 sacks as an interior defensive lineman you know this is like that just doesn't happen anymore I mean Aaron Donald pulls it off but nobody else does you know you don't have multiple defensive tackles pulling off double digit sacks uh in the NFL it just doesn't happen and uh, McMichael had 10 in 84 when the Bears set the record for 72 sacks in a season man and all those guys up front man it's yeah. just it's unbelievable the way that, that like it seemed like every play right when the, when the 49ers would snap the ball especially in pass protection it's like there's this there's the initial collision between the offensive and defensive line, and then like instantly somebody's getting around their blocker, right? I mean, just like quickly every yeah. single time. There was so much chaos in the pocket. There were, there were very few plays where like Joe Montana actually had time in the pocket. He he could extend plays out of the pocket and you know let things develop a little bit more downfield, but like he was never just like sitting there with time to throw. It was either a quick three step drop throw in that 49ers offense or He's flushed out of there by somebody and, and just trying to create something on, out of space for himself. Yeah, more times than not, Montana was running for his life uh, in that game. And we were talking before we got started uh, recording is that they registered seven sacks in this game. They hit him 14 times as well. So Montana spent a lot of this football game picking himself up off the ground. And that's how you neutralize the defending world champions who, you know, had the, were the highest scoring team in the NFL the year before next actually second because the Dolphins were the highest scoring offense but you know this is a team that scored 38 points in the Super Bowl and you know had no problem scoring 23 points on the 46 defense just 9 months before in the NFC title game and their offense only generated 3 points because that other 7 came from that pick 6 so the Bears held this this offense to 3 points in that game, Montana threw for less than 200 yards. Penalties kept Roger Roger Craig's uh, rushing total down to, you know, like 40-something yards uh, for the game uh, and things like that. So, I mean, they bottled this team up like nobody had before. The, the stat line is surprisingly similar, and, of course, like the arrows make this not a fair comparison, but, like, I, I associate the, these kind of stat lines with even, like, the like – the, 
Todd Collins game against the Panthers in <laughs> 2010, where 160 passing yards for Montana and no receiver had more than 41 yards receiving right. four catches, and your leading rusher had 42 yards and combined 67 yards rushing. Like that's and plus the seven sacks, like and all the penalties, like that that combines for what would be a, a terrible offensive performance in the modern age, and and wasn't all that was still pretty bad back then too. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, – I mean, but what made it more remarkable was, like, this was a team that had its way with defenses, including the Bears, uh, the year before. And, you know, the Bears just kind of went into their own house and slapped them around the whole place and came away with a 26-10 to 10, uh, victory. And they did so convincingly in the fourth quarter because their, their second-to-last drive soaked up seven and a half minutes – of the fourth quarter where the 49ers are only down 10 or excuse me, nine points, but they need the ball if they're going to make a dent in this thing. And the bears just ran it to, with sweetness. I mean, at one point they ran the ball seven times. Six of them went to Walter Payton. The other one went to Suey. All of it was positive yardage and all of it kept the chains moving, kept the clock rolling. And eventually the bears finished it off with that 17-yard run from Sweetness that you were talking about where he gets to the outside, he's carrying Ronnie Lott for the last four yards and kind of pushed his way through the other defender that was in front of him. Uh, that was you know basically the, 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 the wall between him and the end zone. Peyton runs through him while Ronnie Lott is uh, you know wearing, being worn as a backpack on Sweetness's back for a touchdown that iced the game and put it up 26-10, which is what the final score ended up being. And I don't understand how he stayed in bounds because he's like his foot is like at the the sideline. Heck, I don't call it that a hash mark, but the little like you know, the mark from the sideline. When Ronnie Lott, who is running perpendicular to him to push him out of bounds, makes that contact, right? Like Lott's trying to not just tackle him, but actually push him to that sideline while Paul, while Peyton's going toward the end zone. And like somehow, I mean, he gets pushed out as he's hitting the pylon, so it's yeah. not like he stayed in bounds the whole time. But he went like four yards from that sideline spot through lot through the last defender, and I think he had a wide receiver blocking sorta in that area too. There was just a mess of a pile of players there. Then like somehow he's in the end zone, and he probably should have been out of bounds at the two or three yard line. Yeah, yeah, and it's amazing if you go back and uh, I was also watching earlier today the. 85 year in review NFL films of the bears. And they had an angle where the cameraman was basically at the pylon. So Walter Payton was running to him uh, on that play. And right up until that last moment where he dove over the pylon, he was never in danger of going out of bounds. He just ran through what was there with Ronnie lot on his back. And that I think it was Ken Marjoram, who was the receiver that was there um, who was behind the guy. So it's like if, if he tried to run, you know, turn around to try to, to stop sweetness, Marjorie was there behind him to kind of wall him off uh, kind of thing. But until he went over the pylon, he was never in danger of going out of bounds when it looks ludicrous watching it from the game. And mm-hmm. like, how did he stay in bounds that whole time? Like if in today's NFL, we'd probably see him step out. Nope. Go back and watch it through that angle uh, where he's basically running at the camera. He never went out of bounds until he dove over that pylon. That reminds me too. I, I was surprised, like how often they went to those all twenty-two angles on the replay. Like that, that's that's something we get very much of anymore. But over and over again, they'd go to the the CBS chalkboard. I think they called it, even though it's not chalk. And like we could <laughs> see, but like we could see the way the blocking was set yeah. up so nicely. 
that touchdown, you know, the, the tight end on the, the strong side blocks down and the tackle and the left tackle and the left guard both pull into the hole plus the fullback. And that's what springs Walter Payton free is that the tackle kicks out to, to kind of create that outside edge. The guard gets the first guy in and the fullback gets the second guy to create that lane. And then it's just a breakaway run. And it just seems like it, it was almost a better broadcast that way. And, and nowadays we get, you know, there's there's 20 cameras so we can get all these little close ups. But it, we see the game so much better from, from some of these angles that they were just using back then because they had fewer angles to use. Yeah, very scarcely do they do the all 22 angles where we get to see the entire field where they show us where something happened. I The last one that I can kind of vividly remember would be um, when CBS did it for the Bears-Ravens game when they were trying to show how Marquise Goodwin was so wide open on that touchdown pass that Andy Dalton threw him towards the end of the game. Um, you know, they took the lead later late on and was a fourth down play. He hits Marquise Goodwin down the sideline for a for a big touchdown that put us ahead that we, you know, the lead that we blew literally 30 seconds later when we gave the ball back to the Ravens. <laughs> but, you know. Tyler Huntley. Yeah, to Tyler Huntley. Come on. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just totally erase the fact that Robert Quinn had a three-and-a-half sack day that afternoon. Like, that's not the thing, that's not the thing you remember, even though it should be, uh, when you think about that Bears-Ravens game, that Robert Quinn had three-and-a-half sacks in that game. No. No, Tyler Huntley, who was in for the Lamar Jackson, who just found out at breakfast that he wasn't playing, uh, beat the Bears and looked efficient and competent while doing it, which is what made Bear fans even more nuts. It was like, this guy came off the bench, found out this morning he was playing, and he outplayed Fields and Dalton, you know, on our own field. And it's just and missing Hollywood Brown. They were missing all kinds of targets and players, and they beat us anyway. So, Yeah. Not a problem you saw with this 1985 team. Nope, 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 nope. So, at the end of the football game, we're up 26-10. to 10. 49ers get the ball back. They do nothing with it. They ended up giving the ball back to us after the two-minute warning. So, the last buck 50 of the game, uh, Calvin Thomas, who was who uh, one of the many runners and uh, players that uh, ran the football for the Bears back then, they must have had like six or seven running backs on the roster because you had Sweetness, you had, um, I don't know if you would call Dennis Gentry a, a running back. He had a running back's number, 29. But he played, that, yeah. he, he was kind of like the Tariq Cohen of the team, which is ironic because he wore 29. But he was a kick returner. He received. He ran the ball, the whole thing. He was more of a special teams guy uh, and everything. You had Calvin Thomas. You had Thomas Sanders. Uh, you know, so that's what, four deep uh, right there. And then you had, you know, Suey and, you know, and whatnot in the, in the fullback uh, position. And plus the two quarterbacks that scrambled quite a bit. I was just counting. They have seven guys that year that had at least 24 rushes. <laughs> two, two of them are quarterbacks, but still five, five backs with 25 or more carries that year. Right. Yeah. And, and Mike Tomczak, an undrafted rookie out of Ohio State that year, was our third-string quarterback in 85. He even had two carries in there. <laughs> Six pass attempts. Wow, okay. Yeah. He, Ditka had no problem yanking somebody. A, yanking somebody, or B, just like, hey, the game's over. Go ahead and get in there. Get the kids some reps, uh, kind of thing. Whereas Nagy was allergic to stuff like that. And it's like that's why you can't develop anybody. So anyway, that reminds me. I loved. I loved seeing. There was one toss play to Walter Payton, where he pump faked. Because <laughs> like, yeah. we know the running back, the halfback pass with Payton was always like a threat. He never threw it that actual game, but it was just like it was randomly in the third quarter or whatever. When it's like he's just running with it, and then they've just been running the ball. So you're like you're, you're almost not not numb to it, but you know you're just expecting okay handoff to Payton, and then he 
pulls the ball off and pretends to throw. And I was like, it jumped on me right away. I was like, oh, like I forgot. Like he is a a competent enough passer on some of those plays, and it was a real weapon for them. But they, I don't know if it fooled the defense or not. But it was just funny to see. You don't you don't really see running backs pump fake on standard toss plays anymore. Yeah, Peyton legit played quarterback a few times during his uh, career uh, with the Bears. Like he was legitimately the quarterback on the field. Or like he threw two touchdown passes against the Saints playing quarterback for the Bears. Both of them to Willie Gault, I believe. Finished with a career 32% completion, but eight touchdowns, six interceptions, not bad. (laughs) Still the record, I think. I I don't know if Latanian Tomlinson caught him or beat him with that, but uh, uh, yeah, eight touchdowns in the NFL career, that was a record for a while. A non-quarterback throwing touchdown passes. Latanian did not. He had seven. Seven, okay. Because I remember he was closing in on the record, you know. Because I remember in 07, he threw a touchdown pass against the Bears in the opener in two, yep. 2007. But um, it was the only touchdown they scored. I think it wasn't that like a 10 to 3 game. And that was the only touchdown scored was Tomlinson hitting like Antonio Gates for a touchdown or something like that. That sounds vaguely familiar, but I, I don't remember the game that well. You remember better than I do. Yeah. Well. Yeah, we've 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 you you played that game with me last year while I was rattling off the entire 2006 season just sitting on my couch. So, but what what, what we were what we were talking about before we kind of went off on a little tangent here was the last two minutes of the game. The Bears are running the ball, and the last two plays of the game are rookie defensive tackle, first round pick William the Refrigerator Perry finds himself in the backfield. And runs the ball for the last two plays. As a fullback, just a straight fullback dive to burn up the clock. Did you know there was a history behind that? I did not. going in. I, so, like, I knew when they said, you know, he's the rookie, and I looked it up. I was like, oh, those were the first two carries of his career. And I was like, oh, that that's somewhat, I mean, little did they know at the time, foreshadowing to how that would develop. Yeah, into this inadvertently, football. a legend was born that day. Yes. But um, the reason for it was in the NFC Championship game, when the game was out of reach, for one reason or another, Bill Walsh found it necessary to put his all-pro guard, Guy McIntyre, in the backfield as a lead blocker. And Guy McIntyre, to my knowledge, never ran the ball, but you put your all-pro guard in the backfield when the game was out of hand so he can open up field, open up you know lanes for Craig or, or whatever. Was it Turner, the other guy? Yes. For open up lanes for them. Mc, uh, McMahon Ditka took it as an insult. Sorry, Tyler. Wendell Tyler. Tyler. Okay. And this was his response to Bill Walsh for doing that in the NFC Championship game. Not only am I going to put my biggest guy uh, in the backfield, I'm going to give him the ball and Twice. gave it to him on those last two plays where he just ran into a pile of humanity for about a yard on each carry if he got anything. And there you have it. The next thing you know, the very next week against the Packers on Monday Night Football, he's in the backfield again, destroys and opens up a cavern at the goal line for a touchdown for Sweetness. I mean, whatever was there was gone when Sweetness ran through because he almost fell down, leaning forward, expecting contact in the in the end zone. And then the next time they were at the goal line, they actually gave him the ball and he scored his first touchdown. And then truly a phenomenon was taking place in Chicago. I looked it up just because I was curious when you mentioned Guy McIntyre. He did, he never did carry the ball mm-hmm. ever, but he did in 1988. He had a 17-yard touchdown catch. 
at six three two seventy five. I I would love to see what that play looked like. Yeah, yeah. But fast forward to week number nine, and you get to see William Perry at the goal line, go in motion of all things. And then at the snap of the ball, he runs a little arrow route. The goal line was wide open and caught a touchdown pass against the Packers. His only catch of his career, I just checked, uh, four yards. That was it, four yards. He had five carries for seven yards and two touchdowns that season, one catch for four yards and a touchdown. Six touches, three touchdowns. (laughs) Yeah, and that's why they had, uh, that's why the fridge was a national sensation in, in 85. And then three carries the rest of his career. Like, it was it was never a thing from there. Well, because in 86, he started fumbling the ball. Ah. So, he like, there was a game. Like, as a matter of fact, yeah. the game that I watched with uh, Emery Moorhead, they pulled him in at the goal line, and he fumbled the ball, which is why the game was as close as it was. Because, like, the first time that the Bears, that the Packers had the ball, Mike Richardson, who was a very, very good corner for the Bears, uh, intercepted the pass and takes it back like inside the 20. The Bears get it all the way down to the goal line and give it to the fridge, and he fumbled the ball. So we come away with nothing after you know this turnover that got us inside the 10-yard line or whatever it was. That kind of became his thing. He kept fumbling the ball. Like when they would run, the, give him the ball in preseason, he kept fumbling it. So just it stopped being a thing after a while. And plus, you know, he was giving you – five sacks a year at the defensive line. Yeah. You know, you do want to rest him up and, and get the, the quality of defensive line play that you were getting from him there, too. I do understand. So, but that's where the, the, the legend, the myth uh, of the fridge began in 85, which was a, you know, which started out as a middle finger to Bill Walsh from Mike Ditka and became one of the biggest stories of that historic season for them. Because before you know it, you're seeing the fridge on McDonald's commercials. He's, I think it was Coke he had. He was, uh, I remember him being a toilet paper, like Charmin, you know, <laughs> talking about how it was two-ply. Hey, look, it's two-ply, and he's pulling them apart and everything like that. It's, he was everywhere. He was absolutely everywhere. He had his own song and everything. Not just the, like a verse on the Super Bowl shuffle. They made a song about him. Like, you know? like, like a, like a, what kind of song? Like a whole song? It was a rap song. Yeah. Really? Yep. I had no idea. They call him the fridge when they're on the goal line. And it's six <laughs> points every time. <laughs> That's the, how the song goes. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Because uh, actually I, I, I was reminded of it last night when I was watching the year in review. One of the lyrics was, uh, we got the great Walter Payton and Jimmy Mac too. Jim McMahon. Two, but at the call at the goal line, they call number seventy-two. Smart, smart. There's, it, there's, cheap, I say two and two, but it's a good ride. There's nothing more feared than the attack of a three hundred twenty-pound running back. I like that. Yeah. Ooh, so, twenty. They gave him. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but there was there was a song. I remember hearing it on the radio. I was seven years old at the time. That song was everywhere. You could not get away from it. So yeah. Maybe dig that one up on YouTube or something like that if you can find it. <laughs> I will. Yeah, it's epic. I promise you. So, but, you know, this victory for the Bears that put them at 6-0, and they were one of two undefeated teams because they kept talking about how the Rams were 6-0 and uh, throughout the uh, broadcast because it was more about talking about how much 
this loss putting the 49ers at 3-3 three and three was putting them in a hole behind the Rams, who are 6-0. and oh. So we're three games behind, uh, you know, the first place uh, Rams in this one and who are also undefeated along with the uh, Bears. But um, it was also kind of a passing of the torch because the 49ers, the defending world champions, you know, they got laid waste in, in their own stadium by the team that would, you know, that ran over them on their way to claiming their own title that year. I don't know. Can it be a passing of the torch when they, I guess they, they get the torch back and they win. Eventually. Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. they did sort of pass it temporarily and, and let the bears have it for a year. And of course goes around a little bit more before it comes back to them, but it was still Walsh and, and Montana for, and they were still like really good. I mean, they won their division every year. They made the playoffs every year from there. Like, so, but yeah, no, it was definitely like the bears coming out party. It's sort yes, of that. Like, for sure. like, of course, like everyone knew they had been good the year before. It was not, questioning like coming out as far as like oh this is actually a good team but like even they kept saying in the broadcast like this bears team has the i don't remember the wording they used carries itself like like a team that could go all the way like they use that exact phrase that could go all the way like they they have the confidence and the the composure and the swagger or whatever however they described it yeah like a team that that is built to go on a a significant run and you could kind of start to see it from there yeah and they that's what they were talking about throughout the broadcast when we had a chance to talk to some of the players last night in the hotel they carry themselves like champions like they expect they expect to win games like they they turn that corner where you know they hope they're going to win to they expect to win and Lauren this was an era of football that ruined me as a football fan because (laughs) 85 was the first year that I followed a team from start to finish and the Bears went 15 and 1 you know, laid waste to the NFC in the playoffs, the Giants, the Rams, and then destroyed the Patriots in the Super Bowl, which at the time was the largest point margin in Super Bowl history. Um, I didn't see the Bears lose a game once in 85 because their one loss to the Dolphins was on Monday Night Football, which was past my bedtime. So (laughs) I just woke up the next morning to find out that the impossible had taken place and the Bears lost the game last night. What? They can lose because not only did they go 15 and one and win the Super Bowl in the first season in 86, they went 14 and two, you know, before they lost in the divisional round to the Redskins. Then in 87, they were 11 and four. And then in 88, they were 12 and four. So, you know, and then counting the playoff games, and I did the math yesterday, as a matter of fact. They played 70 games in those four seasons. They went 56 and 14 in that time. So imagine how long a year it was for me in 89 when they went 6 and 10. So You were so spoiled, huh? I was. Spoiled rotten. You know, it was kind of like, you know, growing up a Patriots fan. You know, my first four years paying attention to the NFL, the Bears did not lose. You know, they did not make a habit out of it. And what I find even more significant now is that whenever there was some kind of marquee matchup, whether it was on, whether it was on Monday Night Football or just a big game, like these two teams, you know, getting together, the Bears won those games 9 out of 10. 9 out of 10 times the Bears would win the game. One of the best examples would be the opening game to the 1987 season, the Bears and the Giants playing on Monday Night Football. It's a matchup of the last two Super Bowl champions in Soldier Field, and the Bears destroyed the Giants on Monday Night Football to start off the year. Just laid waste 
to the to the to the Giants. They they had no shot uh, of winning that game. And this again, the defending world champions, um, you know, coming to Soldier Field to start the year, it did not go well for them at all. Phil Sims still has nightmares about Richard Dent after that game. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure I would. How many quarterbacks still have nightmares about that defense? I mean, holy hell. I mean, like I said, um, you know, they hit Montana 20 times in this game, seven sacks, 14 hits uh, and things like that. I mean, they were, they were in his face. And, you know, speaking of the 49ers in 88, the year that the bears lost to the 49ers again in the NFC championship game, they played a big Monday night game in soldier field where the Bears won 10-9. to It was a real nail-biter at the end. But they banged up Montana so bad he didn't play the week after. He did not play the week after the Bears game, just basically because how beat up he was mm-hmm. from that game uh, in, uh, on Monday Night Football. They just constantly in his face, constantly banging him down. I think one of the plays that, synced it, that cinched it, like Richard Dent comes flying in over the top and sacks uh, Montana on like third down, fourth down, or whatever it was, just an insane uh, play uh, to win that game. The, but the Bears won those games. More times than not, they won. I mean, think about even, you know, uh, the the modern era, uh, like, like 2010. Um, you know, even when we were one of the better teams in the league, whenever we ran face-to-face with someone who was of, you know, substance or to give us a, a good matchup, the Bears never won those games under Lovey. And then, you know, the only time that I think that we did – recently was when the bears beat the Rams on that Sunday night game back in 2018. That's the last time that I can think of where it was like, here's this marquee matchup. Here are these two teams who's going to win. And then the bears did. It's like, wow, they almost never do that. Now, anytime you run into or like a must win game, the bears always won it, you know, just something about Ditka and what he did with those teams. Those guys won all the time, all the time, you know, 56 times out of 70 games in the first four years that I'm following the NFL, the Bears are winning the division every single year. You know, the playoffs is a foregone conclusion. It's just how deep are they going to get? You know, like I remember reading Sports Illustrated as a kid. Every NFL preview had the Bears in the Super Bowl in that stretch of time. Every year they were the best team in the NFL. They should have won three or four Super Bowls in that era, but, you know, fate didn't see it that way. And in the playoffs, it just didn't happen but everyone expected them to be there every year that that late half of the 80s they should have won at least two or three super bowls well if it makes you feel any better when i was seven years old um dick Duran and cordell stewart had some real trouble starting one and five that year in 2003 oh i remember vividly um week one against the 49ers ironically enough we lost 49 to 7 or 49 to nothing to start the cordell stewart era yeah, I remember I was uh, actually playing in a softball league that fall, and that was like our first, second game of the season. So somebody had the game on the radio, and I'm just listening to this thing go sideways like you. Like, well, I'm glad I'm not home watching this. I'd have broken my television by now. Three interceptions from Cordell, Cord, Cordell Stewart in that game, plus two fumbles. The Bears turned it over five times. And I was excited about Cordell Stewart, man. I really was, you know, because 2002 – was that Jim Jim Miller or Chris Chandler, one of the two, that was the quarterback? It was like a statue back there. I was like, yeah. It was Miller. Our, what's that? It was Miller that year, yeah. It was Miller. Cause, yeah, because he was the guy in 2001 that helped us go 13 Miller got hurt, too, and so Chandler played. I mean, but they both played that season. Okay. That's what Same happened. with 2003 with Stewart, where Chandler still played like half that year. Yeah. So, and we drafted 
Grossman in 03. So he ended up playing like the last game of the season. But he started three games, actually. Did he start three games in 03? Yeah, that's what it, oh, that's wow. I'm reading. I don't remember, but that's what I'm yeah, reading on the internet. I, I remember him starting one, like the last game against the Chiefs or something like that at the end of he the year. But two and one, beat the Vikings, Redskins, and then lost the Chiefs. Wow. Okay. All right. And then immediately blew out his knee in 04 and didn't play. <laughs> and <laughs> did it again in 05 where he didn't play until week 13. So great start to his career. But, um, you know, it, it, I was very excited about Cordell Stewart because of his ability to scramble and everything. I thought with our offensive line, and you know, we needed a running quarterback, and it could not have gone any worse than it did. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. It was, so that, that was my childhood, um, comparatively to yours, but, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the other thing was, man, being in Chicago in 85 when the Bears were doing that, that was, that, I mean, that was something else. I mean, all, all the local commercials, there was a football player in every one of those commercials. You watch in television, there's Keith Van Horn, there's Tom Thayer, there's, you know, Dan Hampton and, you know, Stephen Michael or whatever. It's, they were just everywhere uh, in it. And uh, I remember they – the Lions outside of the um, the art museum in Chicago had Bears helmets on their heads. Oh wow! Yeah, so it was uh, it was an amazing time, uh, and I'm I'm glad that I was old enough to be able to remember it, even though I was only seven. Everything that was happening, you know, of course, my dad's going nuts because the Bears are doing this and all that stuff. It was it was a great time to uh, to experience and uh, one that I long to live through again. For Christ's sake. I, I kind of picture you as the little kid in the Princess Bride movie where you're sitting in bed in the Walter Payton shirt. Was <laughs> That's what I'm picturing as you as a child. Something like that because, um, you know, the Super Bowl was bittersweet for me the, the day of the game because my dad had a big Super Bowl party at the house. We had all kinds of people over, and my mother, for some reason, got it into her head. She needed to take the kids out of the house. So we went bowling. Against my will, we went bowling. I wanted to stay home and watch the game, and instead she took, there were like six of us, you know, various kids from the couples and families or whatever that came to the house to watch the game. And I drove my mother nuts the whole time we were at the bowling alley because I was watching the game at the front desk with the guy at the front desk instead of bowling. She had to yell at me to come and take my turn so I could go running back to the desk and watch the rest of the game. I bet that was a pretty empty bowling alley. Yeah, it would, there were not people there, so <laughs> not a whole lot of people. So I don't remember having trouble getting back to my uh, getting back to my lane so I could bowl. I wasn't exactly running through anybody else's game to get back to my lane uh, or anything like that. You know, I just remember being very easy. Pick up the ball, roll it down the hill. Okay, and didn't uh, okay then there again. Okay, I'm done, and I run back to the front desk to watch the game. You know, so she should have left me at home. I begged you to leave me at home. Instead, you made me leave. So here we are. You did it to yourself. <laughs> so, but um, yeah. So, you know, overall, your thoughts about, you know, seeing this very, you know, cherished era uh, of Bears football and this team that even to this day is revered like no other. Yeah, you know, it was it, it was what I expected in terms of like, how good that front seven was and you know, all, all the names that, you know, were just as good as they were built to be on both sides of the ball. Yeah. And then it was, it was unexpected how many, how many, how many similarities there were to some of the things in the modern game and some of the ways in which, you know, that, that like 
the, the differences in terms of like the physicality of the players and the speed, kind of like we talked about earlier. Like I, I was, it, it was enough of a nice mix of like it wasn't so predictable that I was like, oh yeah, I, 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 everything happened exactly the way I expected it to. And then there was enough like nice mixes that was like, oh okay, like this is actually like really interesting and cool and kind of fun to see back like what was the same, what was different, and boy, it would have been cool to be alive during that. Yeah, yeah, it was something special uh, for sure because I, I remember watching a lot of those games. Uh, with my dad in our living room. And I remember vividly. It's funny the things that you do remember when you think back, something that triggers a memory for you. Watching that Redskins game, Bears scored so many points, my dad was helping me learn math during the game. It's like, all right, Larry, we're up 31-7. to seven. If we score again, what's the, you know, how much will the Bears have? Uh, 31 plus uh, 38. It's like, okay, now we got 38. The Bears score again, how much will they have? Well, 45, very good, you know. That kind of thing. I was learning math because the Bears were breaking the scoreboard against the Redskins in that game. By the way, your thoughts. Commanders, yay or nay? You know, it's – I honestly, I, a lot of people hated football team, and I, I actually kind of liked the novelty of calling them the Washington football team. Mm-hmm. So, like, by comparison, I like the Commanders a lot less. I, it just – it feels very boring and plain. It's not, it does, yeah. it's not awful. Like, sure, whatever. But, like, I would have liked something a little bit more – exotic i really was hoping they would go with like red wolves or red tails or or something like that you know i almost expected something like that of dan snyder you know just the you know the the bafangu of the you know the you know (laughs) naming the team something red something like it's not going to be red skins how about red wolves red tails you happy now you bastards kind of thing but uh instead they went a complete you know 180 on it and just went with something commanders here we go washington you know, we have military stuff here. We got we're commanders. At the very least, I wanted something that would either have a cool mascot or a cool logo. And like commanders, like is it just going to be like a, a military general? You know, like <laughs> give me give me some kind of animal, some kind of something I can have fun with instead of just like yeah, I, Red Wolves was my pick. That's what I would have gone with. You know, get a nice like jaguar style graphic on the side of the helmet for the for the wolf or, or whatever. I really would have dug because I actually wanted the the skins to the skins. The commanders to stick with the same color palette. It's one of my favorite in the NFL, the maroon or the burgundy with the yellow and white. You know, I'd always liked their their uniforms. Like when they won the Super Bowl in ninety one, they almost exclusively wore the white jerseys with the burgundy pants with the yellow and white stripes. It's one of my favorite uniforms. And um, you know, I was kinda hoping they would stick with the color. They they kinda did, but that it's not the same. So I just like I, you know, wasn't really happy with the uniforms and i still cannot understand the obsession with the gradient numbers i don't get it oh worst i don't get it you know it looks like hell on the rams it looks even worse with the falcons and now the commanders are getting in on the deal so i don't understand that at all as long as the bears avoid it that's what's key bears have a traditional uh uh, uniform i hope even if even if and when the mccaskey sell the team that the new owner doesn't change up the uniforms it, it hasn't been broke so don't fix it so 100 percent agree yeah i'm there's i've always much, loved the bears think. uniforms what's that there's too much history in them then there's oh, two for two, sure they're too it'd be like it'd be like the packers right like they're not going to change right. their not to make that comparison but like it's just one of those like no, you're right it's, historic it's, teams like it's one thing where like the, you know like the new york giants or whatever will like slightly change their blues or reds or whatever but mm-hmm. like beyond that it's just not going to happen but i mean teams like the you know the raiders and the Colts, you know, those are iconic, very classic, 
but there's a lot of, you know, beauty in their plainness, if you will, uh, that, you know, doesn't need to be touched. Whereas like teams like the, the lions and the, the Vikings who had good uniforms have tinkered with them so much. It's like their uniforms suck now. So, you know, I've just, you know, like, yeah, it's all right. And, Simple. And the, yeah. And the, and the bears with their iconic numbers, nobody else has though that font of numbers on the jerseys and things like that. I would hate for someone to come in and change it, you know, burns, <laughs> burn Hallis Hall to the ground if they ever do it. So among the many other reasons we've wanted to burn house. Yes. Hall. Yes. Yeah. Well, we we're, we're, you know, we put the, the torches and pitchforks away for now to see what Ryan Poles and, uh, Eberflus are going to do. Um, all of it sounds good so far, as far as you know the kind of players they're trying to sign, the mentality they're going to instill in the team. It all sounds promising. It all is very familiar because it's what Lovey uh, did, which was a successful era. Even though it didn't result in in multiple Super Bowl appearances, we won more than we didn't while Lovey was the coach, which was something that was rare between Ditka and Lovey. You know, Wanstad and Jerron didn't exactly light up the winning column uh, while they were coaching uh, the Bears. But, um, you know, to bring that mentality back and all that kind of stuff, it's it's a welcome welcome change, especially from the four years of incompetence that we just went through with uh, Nagy and his stubbornness and, you know, trying to fit people into a scheme that doesn't work, whereas Getze and Eberflus are like, we're going to put our players in the best position to succeed. I almost cried when I heard him say that. So it's, uh, you know, something that we wanted so badly, especially after we drafted Fields last year, and it just never, never happened. So I'm, I'm hoping that it can't get much worse than it was last year. So, I mean, it just got so progressively worse from the start of 2018 all the way through the end of 2021. It was not four years I'd like to relive again. They're certainly saying all the right things and, and- – yeah. That's all the right reasons for hope, and we'll, we'll see how it goes because they're definitely playing the long game here. So I think it's going to be some some patience in this first year, and we'll kind of build it up from there. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I haven't been as active in the offseason. I was like, even with the signings that we have made, there's nothing that's going to blow your hair back. So it's like, I I don't really know these guys. I, I know of them. Uh, you know, it's just like I, just, I don't really know much about them it's it's more about their potential than it is the players that they were before they came to us Byron Pringle Equinemia St. Brown you know uh, Patrick and uh and everything and we just signed that Crookshank who's like the tight end whisperer uh from from the Titans we have a fullback on the roster now and, and you know things like that it's just but you know the the thing that the Bears have made headlines with is the things that didn't happen we lost out on Ogunjobi um Byron Allen uh, stayed with the Rams instead of coming to Chicago, and then uh, the Bills matched the offer sheet to Ryan Bates. So the people that probably would have gotten the Bears fans excited a little bit, we lost out on, or, you know, like the Elgin Joby thing, we rescinded the offer after he failed his physical. So it's been, you know, not a good start to the era as far as optics are concerned, but it's like I, I do think that Poles is leading us in the right direction. It'll all come down to the draft. Will he be like Ryan Pace and give up? all his picks to trade up and get somebody or will he be patient and let it come to him or even more so drop back in the NFL to get more picks to load up on people. Well, you know, we've seen, we saw Ryan Pace be aggressive in free agency and then aggressive in the draft. We've seen Ryan Poles be patient in free agency. So I would assume 
patient in the NFL draft, and it's going to require some some patience from all of us here. But <laughs> you can you can see that you can sort of see the the general idea. But and and he definitely has the the benefit of the doubt at this point to you know see him through, see what he's got planned, and see how it's going to come together, and and then we can judge it once the once we actually see the whole plan and not just see bits and pieces of it here. Yeah, with the Bears not picking until you know early second round, thirty nine. You know, yeah, I know thirty nine and forty eight in the in the second round, thanks to the Khalil Mack trade. But um, you know, I, I'm not so much. I mean, there's still probably going to be some household names uh, still on the board. But it for me, it's not so much what I want the Bears to do. It's one thing that I don't want to have happen in this draft, and I think you'll know exactly what I mean when I say I don't want the Packers to draft Chris Olave. I just hope that doesn't happen. Racers. They're going to take at least one of those. They're going to take a receiver. And I saw a mock draft today where, uh, you know, the Chargers took Olave about three or four picks before the Packers drafted Burks out of Arkansas or whatever it was. It was like, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's fine. They're probably going to take a receiver if they don't take two with their two first round picks. But I'm hoping one of them isn't Chris Olave so we don't have Justin Fields' favorite target kicking our ass twice a year. So I would prefer that didn't happen. So, it would be best to brace yourself for that now. I and know, that, and that's I, the thing. That's what's making me nervous is that it's leaning towards that, not only because they traded away, uh, you know, Devontae Adams and, and all that kind of stuff, but they got to draft a receiver because they're paying Rodgers $50 million a year for the next four years, so they got to give him some some players to throw the ball to, and I just I just hope one of them isn't Olave. If, as long as he goes somewhere else, even if he doesn't – you know, miraculously fall to the Bears at 39, which some people have mocked to be happening. I don't see that. Not after he ran a 4-2-7 at the Combine. But, uh, you know, if he doesn't come to Chicago, I just don't want him to go to Green Bay. Amen. <laughs> All right, Lauren, this has been uh, uh, fun because I didn't, I didn't know how this was going to go. Um, I knew what to expect, kind of talking to Emery Moorhead uh, about it, and, uh, you know, because he was there, so he had a more intimate you know, details and, uh, you know, uh, perspective. He was there when it happened, uh, kind of thing. Like I said, you weren't there. Hell, you weren't even alive when this game took place. Not for what, 10, 11 years? Yeah, uh, 11. Never. There you go. So, you know, but uh, I think we did well. I had a lot of fun. And uh, I want you to tell everybody where we can keep up with you uh, in the meantime because you probably won't see you again until we're uh, previewing the Bears at the end of our opponent preview series sometime in July before camp. Yes, sir. Uh, on Twitter at Cox Sports One, and coming to you five days a week, all off season long, on the Locked On Bears podcast. Pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts, plus on YouTube. All right, so there you go, Lauren. Thanks so much uh, for hanging out, man. We'll see you again real soon. See if we can't uh, find a reason to uh, bring you back before we see you again in uh, July to preview the season. Hey, anytime, man. Thanks for having me. There you go. That is uh, Retro Rewind number two. It's kind of a tongue twister. Retro Rewind. Trying to say it and not sound like an idiot at the same time. It's kind of challenging, actually. But, um, you know, had a great time talking about the game. Was was interesting to hear um, what that era of football looked like to somebody who did not live through it, who's really only ever seen it in highlights, but never sat down and watched a game from start to finish uh, with that era. You know, the interesting things like, seeing Jerry Rice, of all people, as a wide receiver 
in a three-point stance, which was how they used to do it back then. You know, in a three-point stance, not standing at the, you know, with the two points and, you know, standing upright and, and what have you. Uh, the way that the Bears methodically ran the ball, how intricate their, their pulling and blocking system was and how efficient it was, how patient a runner uh, Walter Payton was at times waiting for those lanes to open up for him to shoot right through them uh, and things like that. The joy that he took in blocking and punishing defenders and, and all that kind of stuff. It was a lot of fun to watch, not to mention watching the 85 defense dismantle uh, Montana for seven sacks. And, and actually one was taken back. They had a penalty that took an eighth one away. So they technically sacked him eight times, but they also hit him 14 times as well. So Montana spent, uh, you know, it is one of those games where the back of his jersey was dirtier than the front because he spent a lot of time on his back thanks to this 85 uh, defense. So uh, had a lot of fun doing it, um, trying to get uh, Chris Gates from the Daily Norseman to come on, talk about a Bears-Vikings matchup that uh, I think we mentioned uh, the last time we had Chris on the show at the Week 18 uh, finale episode uh, and everything, and seeing if we can't, Drag in some of our other friends like Jeremy Reisman or, or uh, you know, Tex Western from uh, Acme Packing to talk about some classic Bears-Packers game or a Bears-Lions game with, uh, with Jeremy and, and see who else I can coax into this. So anyway, guys, uh, keep your eyes and ears out. Uh, like I said, I'm trying to be uh, more active, but the fact that the Poles-Eberflus uh, era isn't very exciting uh, right now, um, you know, not exactly the – the top level of free agents being added uh, to the team, and also not a lot happening very often uh, with this team. So, um, you know, I, I like what we're doing so far. I really wish we could have hit on or we could have kept Ogan Joby if he didn't fail the physical. Uh, would have loved it if we could have signed Ryan Bates, his potential, uh, you know, more so than the, 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 the fake, uh, well, not so much fake, but the, exaggerated, you know, uh, jubilation that the Bears signed him to a um, offer sheet before Buffalo uh, matched it. Um, it's like, calm down. He's, you know, he's, he's got potential. That's why he's only getting $4 million as opposed to, like, Brandon Scherf for the uh, formerly of the Commanders, now of the Jaguars, got $17 million a year from the Jaguars. It's like, this is not one of the top-level guards we're, we're signing him and giving him an enormous raise but it's only going to be four million a year so we're, we're not exactly signing you know one of the all-time greats at guard uh or anything like that but people who are also outraged and depressed when we didn't sign him it's like we never had him so anyway but uh we're missing out on byron allen from a uh, brian allen from the from the rams um you know things like that so th- those disappointing losses seem to overshadow Bringing in Byron Pringle and Equinemius St. Brown, the um, Crookshank, the the, the safety uh, from the Titans. We have a fullback on the roster now, and and things like that. So, not a whole lot going on there worth talking about. And unfortunately, I'm not a draft guy. So even though we're closing in uh, on the draft, I I don't really know the prospects or the players or anything like that. I tend to learn about them after we've got them to go back and look and you know, find out what information rather than study 250 guys that we're not going to have on the team. So um, anyway, keep your eyes peeled. It's BTU underscore Larry on Twitter and Instagram. And you can always join the Facebook group. Just search 
Bearstock Underground on Facebook. Join in on the discussion. So, like I said, keep your eyes peeled for our next either retro rewind or just our next episode, period. And until then, my name is Larry D, and this has been Bearstock Underground. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.